Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Matt, the CTO and co-founder of Gremlin, and we discuss what the day was like when he decided to found his own company, how Gremlin is using chaos engineering to make systems more resilient, and why introspection is the key to evolution. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. There he is. What's going on, Joel? How are you? Good to finally meet you. Dude, you're the man of the hour. I'm so, do you go by Matthew <laughs> or Matt? Honestly, I'll answer to Matt, Matthew. My, uh, my coworkers and friends call me Forney, whatever you like. <laughs> All right, I think I'll go with Matt. Cool, sounds good. Uh, I'm actually out in uh, Colorado doing some hiking this week and I saw that you enjoy some hiking as well. I do. Yeah, actually, I just hiked Crater Lake this past weekend. I did uh, Mazama Village up to the Rim Village and back just to go take a little look out there. Where is that at? It is in South Oregon. So I'm in Chiloquin, Oregon right now. It's a very, very small town, like 60 people. Kind of uh, same little place on the river right now just to get a little bit of a break. So Sounds yeah. like we both have the same idea, huh? I think so. But you've got the, you've got the more mountain man beard going on. I got to catch up over there. It's crazy, right? This is we're going on. Uh, I think six, six or seven months since February. It's whatever long that's oh, been. Oh wow! Oh, so you, this is your this is your COVID beard. It's COVID beard. Yeah, yeah. It's, right. it, it was cool, like the cool. most perfect opportunity to get through the awkward initial beard phase, right? Yep. No, I feel you. Right on. So this is Where, the podcast, by the way. Just so you know, oh, like we just oh, record good, the whole good. time. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Are you doing anything in particular while you're out there? So my buddy Derek had moved out here from North Carolina and I was just cooped up in my house for, for so long with the kids and the family and everything. And usually I travel a lot. So when Derek moved out here two weeks ago, I was like, there's my opportunity. I'll go spend like four days in the mountain and two days with Derek. And then, you know, it'll be a nice social distance vacation. Yeah. I think you got entirely the right idea. I'm on, uh, I'm in your boat as well. So uh, how long are you out there for? Uh, I'm just here till the end of the week. Uh, okay. On to the next place for a little bit. So doing a little bit of traveling while, uh, like you said, used to traveling a lot. And so not being able to travel at all has given me, you know, a bit of the itch. So trying to scratch that a little bit. Are you like using the Airbnb to like hop around? Yes, sir. Oh, it's so useful. By the way, I love your logo. <laughs> your your company logo. Thank you. It's this, it's this like little green gremlin. It's, it's this guy right here. Yeah. Your branding is on point. Yeah. Well, this was actually the first decision me and my co-founder made, you know, we put something up on 99 designs and we're like, Hey, give us a gremlin logo. And this is what came out of it. You know, our designer tuned it and tweaked it a little bit, but still probably one of the best investments I think we've ever made. That's a pretty good site. I've used them before for a logo because it like crowdsources. So you get so many variations of it and you can really find like the one that's like, that's the starting point. Yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. And thank you. We're, we're pretty proud of the, the gremlin mascot as well. So what's like the 32nd overview of what gremlin is. So gremlin is a chaos engineering tool. Basically we go out and proactively 
break your services so that you can see what happens under duress. The idea is that you want to do this in a very controlled manner. You want to do it, you know, following the scientific method, have a hypothesis you're trying to either prove or disprove, go create some chaos to see if your system auto heals the way it says it does. If you can monitor the, you know, the impact, if you get paged, uh, that's sort of it. Because as we all know, building complex systems, you know, stuff's going to happen in the real world and it's better to be prepared for it. It's better to, to have this stuff happen to you on your own terms at three in the afternoon as opposed to three in the morning, right? So the idea is build more reliable systems by introducing a little chaos on your own terms. So let's say I have a product, an app, um, web app, and, you know, our investors say, well, what happens if you get, you know, 500,000 users overnight, like in addition to what you currently have? We would normally just be like, hey, well, it scales because we have scaling set up. But this would be a tool where we could actually like simulate that. Yeah. So this would be the tool where you actually go about making sure that your auto scaling behaves the way it does. Right. There's a bunch of these awesome mechanisms these days to be able to spin up new pods, to spin up new instances. If you see increased load, if your CPU spikes, if your memory spikes. But oftentimes it's kind of like cool, push the configuration into production and cross your fingers, hope that it ends up working the way you think it does. This is like, no, no, let's go test that. Let's go spike CPU and make sure that we do scale from two to four instances. And then, you know, once the traffic goes away, that we scale back down. We're always right-sizing our infrastructure that's just so that we're not overspending as well on the other side. That's interesting. Is it like a library I would include in my project or is it like just its own? Like, how does it work? So the way it works is we have a client, we have a, a agent that you install on your hardware alongside of, you know, where your applications are running. And it basically, it, it communicates back with us to our service plane such that, you know, we are able to see the full uh, architecture of your system. And then you can go and select by tag or target or however you like, select what you want to target. So say you have you know, a service running on, in, on instances, you know, A through Z, and you tag them all service foo, you can go just go into the, the Gremlin service and say, I want to test CPU on service foo. It'll contact all of the, the control plane will contact all of those instances and say, hey, go spike our CPU, go consume a bunch of CPU, go consume a bunch of memory, whatever the attack is. Um, and such that, you know, you can test out how those applications actually respond. That's, that's like fascinating. You're completely opening my mind right now. <laughs> this <laughs> Listen, is exciting. That's what we're here to talk about. I'm, uh, I'm excited. You guys must be growing like fast. This sounds like it solves a really big need that's been out there that, you know, I guess. So I have a little background about me. I've been programming for, you know, just over 17 years. And so you're right. Like usually you just put it into production and you're just trial by fire. And then when you have moments to be proactive, you know, for whatever the seasonality of your business is, I found myself spending time trying to figure out how to even begin to test these things, how to send traffic to my, to my, like, I specifically remember this one night, an investor actually asked us. And so I went home and I was like, I found, I found this like HTTP gym for in Ruby. And I, and I was like, oh, I'll just you know, put it in a loop and have it send like tons of requests and try there But that go. that's, yeah. And it, it's like, but there was no tool out there that's like the name brand in the industry that's like, oh, you just go to this tool. They've got, you know, all 50 different type of tests you can run. You just install the agent and then you just rock and roll. And that sounds pretty cool. 100%. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's the thing is 
a lot of people don't know where to begin, right? And so what Gremlin actually gives them is a framework to go say, hey, these are the couple of best practices you should be doing for this service or this technology, or you know, if you're using AWS, here's like some baselining you can do. And we go out and actually test that you're doing all the things that you should be doing. And I mean, this practice, like, like you mentioned, you know, you didn't quite know where to start. You had to go find this gem and then basically wrote your own load tester. But, uh, you know, this practice has been around for, for a while now. In fact, you know, my co-founder and I were doing this back at Amazon like 10 years ago. So it's not, not necessarily a new practice, but it's definitely one that's come into vogue in, in sort of recent years. And, you know, when we decided to start the company, we're like, look, somebody's going to do this eventually. But it better be us. We're the, we're the experts in the space. We may as well, you know. So, you know, I'd never heard of chaos engineering before our uh, production prep with you. And I was like, this sounds amazing. I want you to explain it to me. Doesn't it sound amazing? In fact, I used to, uh, I used to joke when we started the company that my title is chief chaos engineer. And I feel like that's just the coolest title you can possibly have. But <laughs> I mean, chaos engineer is, it's a, it's a practice. Really, it's not, you know, it, it's a, a mentality of engineering in which, you know, you introduce chaos on your own terms, like I mentioned earlier, at, to, to an end, to test a certain hypothesis you have about your systems. And as our systems have gotten more and more complex, you know, with microservices and, you know, moving everything to the cloud, using containers, all of these amazing advancements of technology, you know, we're abstracting away a lot of sort of how how these systems work and we need to be able to test that our assumptions actually do are actually true that, that the mechanisms we put in place to do auto healing auto scaling all of the, these kind of like great you know recent inventions actually hold when they're under duress so that's what chaos engineering is it's crafting a hypothesis creating some attack to some sort of experiment to test that and then observing the results and figuring out if what you actually think happens happens it's weird. It's like once you hear this is an option, it's like you, it just is something that has to go on the checklist, right? Like you just like 100%. I couldn't as a professional, I couldn't like not explore this now knowing that it's that it's so easy. I don't know. You, you have a fan. I'm a fan. <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate that. I mean, one of the ways I explain it is it's it's like resilience. It's It's essentially like resilience testing for your system the same way you would do unit testing, the same way you would do regression testing. It's this idea of like, cool, now do all the pieces move together, you know, well. And it's testing more of the bedrock of what your applications actually run on. So a lot of the mechanisms around infrastructure instead of, you know, just like test this code path or this one particular end-to-end, -end, right? And not just that, it tests under duress as opposed to just like, cool, let's just test it under the good case and move on. So. It's definitely uh, a bit of a departure, I think, from the old school sort of like QA and sort of <laughs> testing modes. You mentioned earlier that you worked at Amazon. Is that right? I did, yeah. What did you do there? That was my first job out of school, actually, which was, uh, it was awesome. But it was also, like you said, a little bit of a trial by fire. Um, and I really, I, I honestly, I loved every second of it. Uh, in fact, you know, the very first day I, I got put onto the availability team, which was in charge of watching and monitoring all of the Amazon retail website, which was really like the moneymaker back in the day before AWS really came along. Got put onto this availability team. It's a very small, but very high powered team. Um, and you know, the first day they tossed me a pager and I remember it was, it was a toss. It wasn't a hand. It was like a toss a pager and just good luck. Give me a little salute and out the door. So 
you know, one of the first things I got to do was go in and just read about all the outages on the retail website and kind of what caused complex systems to go down. And then as I got a little bit further in, you know, my team was responsible for cool. How do we increase uptime? How do we increase the latency, or how do we decrease the latency? So you know, the above the fold page of whatever detail page, list page, whatever you're looking at, loads like that. You know, so it was very, very interesting. It was a very innovative team for the time, and we actually were doing chaos engineering back then. You know, in a little bit more, a little bit more hand manual way. We we're starting to build out tools, but there was this guy Jesse Robin. Robbins, who used to run through data centers and uh, just kind of like pull cables out of the wall. <laughs> he was called the master of disaster at the time. And so, you know, we set about creating a uh, more of a programmatic approach to doing some of that. That is hilarious. And, what a reputation. Oh, it, was, it was a hell of a reputation. Yeah. And then within a couple of years, I actually got spun out of like the, the availability team, which was mainly focused on uptime. Uh, I got spun out to, to create a team called the Fatals team, which tracked any sort of like 5XX server error. So anytime, you know, you see the Amazon webpage say like, whoops, sorry, something went wrong. That was uh, something that my team ended up, you know, watching. So I'm a year and a half out of school and they basically are like, look, we're giving you a team. Your job is to write a weekly email to Jeff Bezos or Uncle Jeff, as we called him at the time. <laughs> and uh, the exec team telling him all the stuff that was going wrong. And uh, I, I just remember we had gone through this like huge microservice migration. Everything was breaking left and right. Nobody really knew what was going on. And we were just tracking these things, starting to, to kind of identify new types of failure modes that were introduced by this migration. And uh, I, I remember one day I went up to my boss and was just, I was complaining, I'm a year out of school, you know, I'm just kind of like, everything's broken, Tim, like what's going on? And he just leans back and looks me in the eyes and he's like, look Forney, sounds a lot like this is happening to you and you need to happen to it. And so then, you know, I ended up creating this whole program around tracking fatals, clustering them, blocking uh, you know, deployments and, and that sort of thing. So it was honestly, my time at Amazon was a tour of duty, but it was an amazing experience and just learning how to build reliable systems and you know, make sure that you're tracking the right things to, to really create a good customer experience. It sounds like the culture has also stayed with you a bit. <laughs> just a little bit. We've taken a couple of those things uh, and brought them over to to Gremlin over here. So the customer obsession, the customer focus is definitely, you know, it is the utmost for us. And then the one that's stuck around and a lot at our company is the day one. We have, I guess, our own interpretation of it, but there's just something so fascinating about how our default programming is to go do something new, right? When you could just take what's working and like improve it. And so we've, we've been really focused on that at the company. And it's like, how's the day one? Like, let's get back to basics. Like, what can we, what can we do right now to improve like our core services? And then it just compounds and you look back like six or seven months and it's just mind blowing how effective of a strategy that is. No wonder Amazon's as big as it is. hundred percent. In fact, I, uh, yeah, I still espouse that idea quite a bit myself. I think on our fourth anniversary of the company, I sent something to the effect of like, Amazing work. We built an incredible team. The product, you know, I love everything about this company, but remember, our work is just beginning. Like, it's it's always back to basics. How can we get better? How can we make the, the customer experience a little bit better? You know, rely on the things that have gotten us where we are. So, yeah, it's a good move. It's what the experts do. They, like, drill the fundamentals over and over in new ways, and they come out like this incredibly polished athlete or business person. 100%. What was the day like? 
where you founded Gremlin. You were like, we know we have something, we're doing it, we're 100% in, we're gonna file the LLC or the corp or whatever it is. Like, what was that day like? Uh, well, it was a day that is completely and totally burned into my memory. I think uh, my co-founder and I, I think he came over, he lived in San Jose at the time I was in San Francisco, you know, and uh, I had a big whiteboard in my front, my front room, which attached to my bedroom, which then became my office for quite some time. But uh, I remember the two of us just sitting there whiteboarding for probably four, five, six hours. And so, you know, Whiteboard, fill the whiteboard up, take a screenshot, fill the whiteboard up, take a screenshot, fill the whiteboard up. And uh, we eventually got to the point where we're just like, look, are we doing this? I think we should do this. You know, it's two in the morning. We've had a little bit of scotch. And we're just like, yeah, let's do it. I think this is the time. And uh, it, honestly, it's, the, it's one of the best decisions I've ever made. I've, I've really enjoyed every single second of doing this. And we're, we're going on five years here. So I feel incredibly lucky to be able to say that. Was that guy you mentioned, Jesse, was he like an inspiration for the name? Because as you described him running around the data center, ripping cords out, like I visualized him as like the little gremlin in the movie doing that. Like just so actually apart. like the, the, the gremlin, like the etymology of it goes back to World War One. Um, pilots that were like running long, long back-to-back -back missions would actually get really like sleep deprived, really bleary eyed. And they would swear to control that they saw little things tinkering on their wings, like messing with their engines and stuff like that. And so like the etymology of gremlins is actually like something that messes with mechanics. These little like just mischievous, but not necessarily malevolent uh, beings that kind of go in and muck with electronics and, and like machinery and that sort of thing. And it just, we toyed around with a couple of other ideas, but we were like, nah, we got to do it. So it's, I think it's like you said earlier, it's been a great, a great uh, sort of like mascot mentality to sort of build our brand around. So I've really, I'm glad we did. I'll say that much. So where's the business at today? Like what stage are you in? Do you mean in terms of funding? Do you mean in terms of growth? Um, I guess in terms there's of a lot of ways I can answer this. Yeah, I left it a little bit ambiguous because uh, not, not necessarily funding. I don't like measuring companies by funding because it's just so inconsistent how people see different rounds across the, the globe. But definitely in the sense of like where you feel it's at. Is it like you have a product, you have a fit, you understand your customer, you, you make those calls, you hear the same things over and over. You're constantly improving, like growing teams of teams of teams. Like, are you trying to figure out international expansion? Just like, you know, where, where is it to you? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think the way I've described it to a lot of people is, you know, the very beginning when we were first starting out the company, it was sort of, the, the question was more, what the hell is chaos engineering? Like there was not a general understanding of what, what this practice even was. And around year two, two and a half, it really morphed more into, okay, well, why would I do that? Like, I've already got so much chaos. I'm already doing so much in terms of fire drills. And I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm already pegged to the wall. This doesn't make any sense. We answered that question. And then it became, all right, tell me how to do it. So I think in terms of where we're at in the journey of sort of like promoting chaos engineering, it's become much more of like, cool, I, I get it. I know what it is. I buy into it. Just tell me how to do it. And I think that's that's sort of where we are in the journey. It's it's figuring out how to take all of our expertise and keep pouring it into the product. You know, we've got a fantastic toolkit that you can do just about anything with. But what we really need to teach people now is like, here's how you perform the practice, the program. Here's how you build out a reliable reliability 
mindset. And really, I mean, I, I mentioned it on a, a publication a bit ago, but like make it into a habit and not just a habit into an identity. Like make this like, I am an engineer that creates reliable code. I am a reliability engineer. Somebody who really thinks about these sort of things uh, on the daily. So to kind of get back to your, to your original question, like, yeah, I think we've got the product, we've got the fit. And now we're really just, we're continuing down that education rabbit, you know, that education route of here's best practices, here's how you do this, these are what the experts do, and you want to be an expert, right? And really promoting that sort of idea, that practice on the day-to-day. Yeah, yeah. So you were talking a little bit about your article and your culture, right? So I had actually read that article where you talked about the culture of uh, resilience through adopting good habits. Me, personally, I'm a huge fan of, like, monitoring your 24 hours and your habits are creating your future and what really set me on that path was this guy, James Clear. Have you ever come across Atomic Habits? I have. That's the book I was uh, talking about. That's the book that kind of got me going down this, uh, you know, this sort of thought process. And I was out, out on a run one morning listening to Atomic Habits and was just like, oh my gosh, I guess at the core, what we're really selling here is a new practice, a new mentality, a new way of sort of thinking about, about developing software. And so it was, you know, we're not just selling a product, we're selling a new practice. We're selling something where it's like, hey, you got to think about reliability as a whole when you're architecting and you need to to really sort of get in there. So I guess the, the part that really resonated with me was just that establishing good habits is all about sacrifice up front without any of that sort of instant gratification. And so that that part was the part that was like, oh shoot, it really is. Like you've gotta you've gotta be willing to defer some of that gratification and sort of fight against human physiology, which is like, I want gratification now. So how do we do that? And so that's what we're working on doing at Gremlins. Like what's what are sort of these, I think James Clear calls them gateway habits, these things that you can do in two minutes to really get some value out of it, right? So how can we get you into the product, get some value, get you out of the product, and you go, cool, that was a great use of time, you know? The, the sort of analogy he uses that resonated with me was, you know, since I'm a runner, was he talks about, cool, you want to run a marathon? Your gateway habit is put on your shoes every single day for a week, right? That's that's the intro. And so that's what we want to get people to do. Come in here, tell us what your, you know, your CPU monitoring threshold is, and we'll validate that your alarms go off. Something like that. Something very simple to kind of get you in and get you hooked on that. How do you personally, how do you ground yourself in the habits? And I'll share, I'll share an example, like for me. So sure. I go to the gym pretty much five to seven days a week, right? And on the days where I'm lifting, which is like probably about five of those days, I track, you know, all my, my sets and everything. So I can constantly increase by like a little bit, which helps track the progress. But what I do while I'm sitting there in between sets, cause I've got like timed rest periods is I'll sure. actually write like the thing I'm like the goal I have or the thing I'm trying to do. And then what habit that I'm currently using that'll get me there. So for example, I'll write like, uh, there's five things that are currently on my, and I've never shared this before. So it's personal. We might cut it out, but <laughs> we'll see how it goes. We'll see what the producer well, thinks. Feel, uh, yeah. All right. So we, it goes like this, it goes nutrition. And my habit for that is tracking my macros and my fitness pal after nutrition, it goes fitness. And my habit for that is showing up at the gym. 
After that, it goes family. And my habit for that is this thing I call Saturday Sheet. It's this spreadsheet we made called the Beasley Games 2020. And we track, I saw, I hired a salesperson. I saw him how he tracked the sales team. We got way better results that way. And so I started doing that like with my family and the things we want to accomplish. I love Uh, that. Yeah. And then I have art. And my habit for that is piano. Uh, So I take like these piano lessons through this app called Simply Piano. And then my last habit, number five, is cash flow. And, and for that, awesome. I attend uh, our sales meetings and meet with the, our financial advisor for the company. Nice. That's awesome. So I write them down. Like I write that list of five and connect those dots like five times a week at least. And I do it like at, at the gym during that session. And it, it's so like it just burns into my mind. Yeah. No, I think that's a great way to do it. I mean, I, I personally have started using, well, not started, I've been using it for a couple months now, but the app Streaks, um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but like basically you put in what the habit you want to do is, and then every day you have to check it off, but it's got, or, or not check it off, and then it becomes kind of obvious, but there's actually like a bit of psychology around like repetition in these things, and as you start to build up a streak, you, you don't, it becomes much harder for you to say, oh, I'm going to break it today. So meditation is one of those things that's been super hard for me to kind of get into, but I I can see I have a 23 day streak of meditation going on. Am I not going to do the 24th day? That doesn't make sense. Right? So things like, things like that. I mean, the, I think the idea that James talks about is making the habits that you want to espouse very obvious, attractive, and easy. And so those are the ways that I try basically anything I'm trying to pick up. I try to make it as accessible as possible so you know if that's running i put my shoes by the door with my like my shirt and my shorts ready to go as soon as i wake up in the morning if it's um drinking a bunch of water like i have a big water jug i fill it up and put it on my desk in the morning and hope that it's gone by the end of the day so it's making these things just immediately ready for you to, to sort of like lean into i suppose and so that's yeah i i i do, I do that stuff too what was his example in his first talk, he did it with like an apple. He put apples like on his kitchen countertop instead yep. of some other type of snack. And he noticed that he just some he just increased his apples intake. And so for me, this concept of curating your environment, like being very intentional about the objects that are you know immediately available to you, will can actually like it's not can they will it it absolutely does shape your future. Yeah, hundred percent. And then you know. Eventually, you get it to be like get these habits to be such a part of you that you have an identity shift, and you start to be. You start to like. I no longer think like I run. Sometimes, like my my thought is I am a runner, right? Like I've run several marathons. I'm like I am a runner. I'm like that's part of who I am now, and so it's there's less burden to it. You know, to to bring it a little bit back, like that's very much what we want to get people to in terms of like reliability. We want to give them the easiest, most obvious attractive and easy way to get into this product and get into this practice and then become you know not just say like i build reliable software but like i am a reliability engineer i'm an engineer that builds reliable software sort of mentality i don't don't think that'll stick but i think like i'm a gremlin would stick (laughs) (laughs) okay i'll work work on that one instead we'll send out little gremlin ears and everything too right like that's an identity and that's you know doing this whole founder business thing finding out i heard this one sales guy had a profound like impact on me how he talked about how sales happens but he talked about this concept of identity like when people can 
when they can buy your brand and then they can become a part of that and that connects with their identity, it's just a whole different type of sale than like a functional transaction. And yeah, I could totally see people like if you have a shirt that has the gremlins on it, I would be very grateful to buy one. I know a lot of people don't sell their company shirts. They kind of give them away. We'll we'll get you one. Don't worry. I will wear it too. I really will. (laughs) I'll get you one after this. I'll, uh, I'll make sure somebody sends one out to you. I love it. When did you, when did you start running? I started running when I lived in Seattle, when I was working at Amazon. So that was probably seven years ago, maybe eight years ago. And it started off with just, you know, 5Ks and stuff like that and started to push myself a bit longer and longer. The whole reason is, is really that's where I find uh, a little bit of like peace of mind, a little bit of quiet to kind of mull over some of the, you know, the daily considerations and whatnot and really kind of dive deep into them. When everything else is distracted and I just have, you know, just have my mind. I don't usually run with headphones or anything like that. I just uh, oh, really? mull over whatever we got going on. So. When when do you run? Like in the morning, afternoon? Mornings. Mornings, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't run in the afternoons. I, if I don't get it done in the morning, it's not going to happen. <laughs> That's funny, me too. So like I get up, I run, make breakfast, then I lift, then I go to work. Because if I try to be like, oh, I'll work out in the afternoon. No, like there's, do you lose, like as the day progresses, you lose discipline almost. <laughs> well, so I heard once that, you know, you have a finite amount of willpower each day. And you can put it towards, you know, sort of whatever you're working on, but it diminishes over time. And then, you know, when it's out, that, that's it, you know, that's the day. So I've, uh, I've found that like, if I, I, I tend to get up at like 5.30 in the morning, get my workout in before, you know, before anything's up. And then I also just feel, you know, I feel quite accomplished for the day as is. So I've never gotten, so I, yeah, I run about a mile to a mile and a half in the morning and it's really just to wake me up. Like I try to get out of bed and onto the sidewalk in like five minutes. So I put my, you know, my starter habit is I put my uh, running clothes on next to my nightstand and all of that. Perfect. So this is just easy, but I've never gotten into like running the five Ks. And then I had, uh, there's this cool scheduling service called Calendly and I had Roy, their CTO on. Yeah. And, and we're like casually talking. He's like, oh yeah, I run. The guy like regularly runs like 22 miles. And I, <laughs> I was like, because I was like, maybe we'll get together, we'll run, you know, go for a morning run. Because to me, that's like a mile, mile and a half. That's fine. You know, I'm not winded. That's just for me to start my day. And he's like, no, I, I do like 22 mile runs. He runs these like long races and like hills yeah. and stuff. And I was like, I felt so small. <laughs> I, I used to do that. And I've sort of faded off from that. In fact, this morning I did. I was like, you know what? I'm not running today. I did a little kayak instead. But I've been trying to switch it up a little bit more just to not, you know, pound the pavement so much, uh, so to speak. So just give the body a chance to recover sometimes. So, yeah, I was wondering about that too. I'm in, I'm in my mid thirties, but I was like, I wonder how long these knees are going to go. Cause I've been running seven days a week for like three years. <laughs> yep. I just turned 32. I'm starting to get there too. I feel you. Nice. Life is good though. Right? Like, do you, have you, Oh, here's something we could talk about since we're so close in age. Okay. So I have noticed this like distinct, like I I like to look at myself like a video game character and like abstract out and like objectively try to view myself. It doesn't happen by default, but you can like sit down for 30 minutes and run the thought experiments. But what I've noticed is like my mind going from like 18 to 22 to 27 to like 32 plus, like I can tell like the maturity happening. Like you can, you can almost feel it. You can feel your mind actually changing how it's processing information 
and you can feel this concept of like experience stacking up or you notice a pattern that's happened three or four times like in your personal life and you just choose you have the maturity or the wisdom to just be like i'm not going to go down that path this time i'm just i've done it three or four times it was horrible every time the last two times i did it and i knew i shouldn't and so but now i'm not going to do it anymore so i've been noticing this like trend have you noticed that within yourself in the past couple of years yeah, 100%. I mean, when we started the company, I was of a very different mindset than I am now. You know, it was still very much perfectionist engineer oriented and was very much like, cool, no, we got to do it exactly the right way. And it's not getting out the door until then. And, you know, I, this is just, you know, one of the concrete examples. But as I've garnered some of that experience over time, it's like, no, we got to, we got to get features out the door, get them to customers, get them to start iterating and using it so that we can decide, you know, is this the right thing? Do we need to pivot a little bit? That sort of thing. But beyond even that, you know, changing just mindset around how I respond to things, how I evaluate things, if I take time to sit back and say, cool, I read through that document before throwing all these comments in there, just to give it some time to digest, as opposed to, you know, more of like the, the spur of the moment, off the cuff, gotta respond immediately, that sort of thing. Taking a bit more time to be to be thoughtful, to be strategic as opposed to, you know, strictly execution oriented has been, I think, one of the largest sort of turning points or changes you know, over time for me. And beyond that, I just, the things I love more, I've just poured more of my soul into. And I, the things that I'm like, this doesn't really serve me anymore, you know, those things I've kind of backed away from. So just getting a little more experience, I think, helps guide that, that, that sort of quest. It gets me excited because I, you know, the story of my life has been patience and like not having it. Right. And so as I'm getting this patience and seeing how this different mindset can yield such better results, it makes me excited about if life has gotten so much better with age now, I'm, I'm excited for the next 20 years, you know? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I'm excited for what comes next. I feel like also the past couple of years have just been, you know, that exponential sort of curve in terms of figuring myself out a bit more, you know? That's like, you know, I was just thinking about that yesterday as I was driving yeah. through the mountains. I said, like, I have this repeating habit that just happens sometimes or this repeating thought that occurs. And it's like me reviewing life, like post life, like giving <laughs> my, my writing my review for like the, the game creator of life, like on how it went. Right. Yeah. It's just this weird thing that my mind does sometimes. But I'm always like, you know, the past couple of years have just been like, this is good because it's like inherently difficult. It's like you you have to like overcome yourself, get to know yourself, and then it's it's really like a one versus one game. And it's a it's it's just interesting to think about. I, I don't hear a lot of people talk about it. So if you ever come across any like good books or narratives or discussions, you know, send them my way. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, introspection, I think, is it's pretty key to some of that evolution as well, right? So yeah, and that, that's Honestly, part of the reason I go, I hike so much, I spend so much time, you know, in the woods, that sort of thing is because that's where, you know, a lot of the other noise sort of dulls and you can spend a little bit of that time being introspective, thinking about, cool, how did this go? Is this something I want to repeat in the future? Did this go really well? Should I double down on this? You know, the same way we were talking about earlier, you know, still day one, but let's go back to basics. Let's go build like the, the core things and sort of work and help us. So. You mentioned actually this concept of like creating do not repeat items. Could you expand on that for me? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, the do not repeat items are more in the aspect of, you know, building reliability software, but I mean, I think they're a general good, you know, sort of note for life. 
The way we use it in terms of incidents and reliability is we take learnings from these incidents that we have and we pull out the sort of learnings and we say, cool, we're going to go fix this because this is a do not repeat incident. And all incidents are do not repeat. I think I, I wrote an article way back when, you probably haven't seen, but it was the, the title of the article is just won't get fooled again. And it was, it's, we're never going to fail the same way twice or we're not learning. And failure in and of itself isn't a bad thing. It's how you learn. But if you don't learn from it and you don't take those learnings and actually you know, automate them and figure out a way to not make them happen again with respect to computing, then you're not learning as much. So what happened that time is our disk filled up, and this is something pretty much everyone has run into if you've been an engineer. Our disk <laughs> filled up, and then we couldn't write any more logs, so we started throwing 5XXs, and everything fell over. And it was 4 o'clock you know, o'clock on a Friday afternoon, and everybody's ready to go home, go to the weekend, and all of a sudden, boom, we get hit with this. Our service is completely out. We got to go in there. Takes us 30 minutes to figure out that the logs are done, uh, that the logs aren't can't be written because the disk is full. Well, that Monday, we wrote the disk fill gremlin. And we said, cool, we're automating this against our system. It runs every day you know, between the hours of 2 and 4 o'clock, and it's never going to bite us again. The mitigation that we put into place is we're going to consistently test it so that it never becomes a problem to us again. And that's sort of the idea of DNR issues, do not repeat issues. So the things that you take away and the things you implement to make sure that you never fail the same way twice. And that's the chaos, that's, I mean, that's one of the cores of chaos engineering right there. So in Gremlin, would I have like a list of all the learnings? Absolutely. That's actually I mean, the, pretty cool. So what, we, what we have in our application is something called scenarios. And we're actually building another layer on top of it called use cases. But the idea is that this is a scenario, a failure scenario, and there's a set of actions that you take to test this. So you make this hypothesis. You say, I hypothesize that my disk, when filled, will kill that instance or replace it with a new one. Then you have you know, a, an attack that basically goes in, fills everything up, and then makes sure that that instance gets killed and that another one takes its place. So you essentially start to build out this library of failure modes that you become immune to you basically inoculate yourself against each of these things as you, as, you hear, as you run into them, if you're going with a reactive approach. So you turn every incident into a learning, into a scenario that you're now immune to. And then on the proactive side, as you're going out and testing things proactively to see like, hey, does this work? Does this work? Does this work? As you sort of like figure out, yes, this, this mechanism does work, you turn it into another scenario. So you build up this whole library of things that you know, your system is re resilient to that, that make you more reliable. And then Amazing. you can share those across different teams, across the company, and everybody gets to learn together. That's so much better than like putting in a Google Doc somewhere of like retro notes. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. I've seen every manner of post-mortem and retro notes. But, and but this is it, like... It tends to get lost in the shuffle. Tell me if I'm wrong because my mind's like connecting the dots or trying to. Sure. So it kind of reminds me of testing how like people would test in the console that's like not writing a test, like how, you know, developers before they learn about what testing is, they'll test in the console. And then it's like, sure. hey, 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 sure. hold on a second, just write this test and it'll save you way a huge amount of time. But it sounds like your scenarios, as you're referring to them, they, they like have the test in them. It's like, it's not just a note, it's like that is the test, but like it can actually run that again and it's all there. Not just run it again, run it consistently. Because the way that these systems run, like 
constantly components are changing. You may go through a migration. You, you've got just all these moving parts as things get more, more complex and you want to make sure that you're never regressing, regressing. There's a book called Drift into Failure. I think Sidney Decker is the writer, but like the idea is that you don't, you never want to just suffer due to code rot or in this case, infrastructure rot or these sort of things where you just over time become more and more resilient or less and less resilient. So by automating a lot of this testing, you're, you're basically setting a baseline of like, no, this is the, the core things that we run against our system to make sure that we're reliable. And to your analogy, like, yeah, you go and automate that, you come up with a set of base classes, that's test-driven development. Well, if you take a bunch of these scenarios from team A, which is great and has you know service foo, which has a ton of reliability, you give it to team B, which is spinning up service bar, now this becomes reliability-driven development. And they can't release the service until they pass scenarios one, two, three, and four, right? Ooh. Until they've got their baseline monitoring, until they've got their baseline alerting, until they make sure they can auto-scale, a bunch of these kind of core best practices that define reliable systems. Watch out, Bezos. <laughs> Matt's team, you guys are going to end up being the domination in the world. No, it's just this stuff. I just get excited and, and geeky. As you were describing it, it reminded me of like an immune system, right? Exactly. Uh, and this concept that I recently heard about called uh, anti-fragile. And I had, yeah. I, I can't remember who I heard. I think I heard it from Rand, uh, like Rand's in repose. Um, yep. Michael Lop, but yeah, he talked about this concept of anti-fragility and it just sounded really, really cool. But that brings me to my, another question I have for you. So, sure. you know, when you're talking about like filling up the disc you're, and, you, and you mentioned earlier, you're, you're having to teach a lot, like to explain these concepts and understand like not only how to do them, but how to do them in the context of, of your system. How has that shaped your company? Do you have people that specifically make educational content? Hundred percent. We have one of the best advocacy teams I've seen. You know, uh, it's run by Tammy Buto, who former Dropbox uh, SRE, who just amazing. We've got uh, Jason Yee and uh, Anna Medina on that team as well, as well as a, a guy by the name of Patrick Higgins, who you know went to go work on the Elizabeth Warren campaign after working for us for a bit, that came back, and they're all just they're so passionate about teaching. They're passionate about building up these boot camp programs and getting people to sort of figure out how to build reliable systems instead of just writing some code, right? How to think about this when you're architecting things from the ground up. And so they're they're very much into that. Our marketing team also does a fantastic job of building out like, look, you use these technologies. Here's the four things you have to do in order to be resilient, to be reliable. So we do a lot of work. You know, I would I would say that it's a team effort. Everybody does such a great job and. You know, there's there's no one person, but uh, it's it's one of the sort of the necessities of category creation is sometimes you got to go out there and teach people, and so we've we've leaned really hard into that, and we we want to do all that we can to teach people, and not just people in industry right now. You know, this this quarter we're going to spend a little bit of time with some groups that support you know younger kids that are just coming out of high school, or you know some of the the underrepresented minority groups to basically be like, cool, you want to become an engineer. Here's some stuff that you might not be taught like in your regular curriculum in school. Here's some things that, you know, you want to be thinking about as you go out into this world and, and really start to, to enter the industry. So, Well, yeah, it's, it's like cool. your top of funnel. I mean, Apple put the, the code playground on the tablet for the kids. You know, they can code little, 100%. get people coding or interested in understanding 
you know the pro and it's not like nefarious at all it's it's very useful because it's like here are the, the real world things you're going to run into and let's learn man i wish i would have like i've gotten to interview people and they like accidentally you know, or just or just by chance like got on was on a good team from the beginning learned best practices as day one and i'm just like i'm like oh man because i i did it wrong for like so long and then got frustrated and learned how to do it right i mean i i felt the same way i i didn't really do internships like the way some of my my colleagues did when i was in college i i worked at a small like contrast a, a contractor with like a small firm down the street from where i grew up and you know, spent my afternoons just kind of hanging out, writing some code. I, I get to write some cool stuff. I got to write some like the check-in technology for the Clinton Global Initiative and stuff like that. But it wasn't, let's learn best practices. Here's a mentor, that sort of thing. It was very much trial by fire. I was, you know, as you mentioned, I, I was, I consider myself very lucky and very fortunate to have landed on the team I did at Amazon. I got to see so much and, and really got to see not just a great organization in terms of like, being able to, to, to get out code and really have like that customer focus and that drive, but also like a really fantastic operations organization, like being able to operate this thing at such scale and spin out, I think while I was there, we spun out China and India, we spun out a bunch of like new regions as well. And to see, to see all that kind of happen, I honestly, I, I, I don't think I, I appreciated it enough when I was there and I, I still appreciated it a hell of a lot. So. I'm curious to know about like, how your sales org is set up, how you get customers. Are most people, do they go like through a free trial or is it B2B, SMB or enterprise? Like what do you, what do you target? Yeah, it's primarily enterprise, but we do have a lot of folks that come in through the free trial. We have a free offering that we launched about a year, year and a half ago, I want to say now that, you know, has out of the box. It has uh, being able to shut down any host and being able to black hole any sort of traffic. You know, we actually give you a playground. We give you two hosts to go play around with. And for a lot of people, that's all they really need to get to that aha moment. And they're like, cool, my company can use this. Let's talk. So that's, there is a little bit of that bottoms up, but for the most part, you know, enterprise is sort of what we're targeting. And that's, that's just because, you know, when you have these larger companies, the downtime, it, it just costs a lot more for them. At Amazon, we were so able to see like, Hey, if we lose, if we do, we have a twenty percent order drop for this amount of time, if it's twenty minutes, we lose four million dollars or something. I'm, I'm making these numbers up, and it was a long time ago. But it's easier for them to kind of like make that value connection a little bit sooner. So some of the SMB, you know, occasionally we'll see like, look, we've already got enough fires, we've already got enough problems going on, and that's again another education opportunity. That's for us to say like, cool, you're in the middle of a migration to Kubernetes. Well, you can test you can test your reliability as you move, right? This is a whole new technology for you. But you know, again, time is one of the biggest one of the biggest sort of issues for developers, right? There's no shortage of things to ever do, and so getting them to to prioritize reliability engineering, chaos engineering is always you know if they don't even have monitoring or something like that, there's always a bit of like, well, cool, let me get this in place first, and then we'll talk. Yeah, that's interesting because at the larger companies, you're going to have like dedicated reliability engineers. Whereas, you know, at a company maybe with like 50 people, that might be like one, one or two people's like side job or something, just a role that they kind of own. But it's really just, you know, checking the logs. But it sounds like what you're doing is you're making software that's like for that role. Yeah, 100%. But it can be used by just about anybody. You know, a, a reliability program is... 
I mean, it's always great. It's a little bit of kind of command and control a little bit, which is unfortunate. Like I always draw the analogy back to the Fatals team at Amazon because I wrote this software that essentially would start to cut tickets to people and it all had my face on it. And so it made me the bad guy. If you go and do that with a reliability program that makes the reliability team the bad, you know, the bad people sometimes. So, I mean, really, yes, if you have an SRA team, they can use this software. They can build out a program and hand it over to new feature teams, application teams as they roll new software out. But ideally, you know, nobody knows their applications better than the actual application developers. And so we want them to understand how to use this as well. And it's, it's a different persona, a different identity, you know, to bring it back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, but there's 100% a path for them as well to be like, cool, I use these technologies, I have two, three microservices, let me run through X, Y, and Z, you know, according to Gremlin, according to the experts, these are the things we gotta do. Do you guys have a podcast? We did have a podcast for a little bit. We were interviewing a bunch of folks in the, uh, it's sort of in the industry, and you know, we just, we didn't have the time to, to sort of continue doing that particular avenue. We've just, still a small company, and there's just so many things to do, you know? So we, after, I think it was about eight or nine episodes, but it was called Breaking Things on Purpose. If you wanna go find and listen to some backlogs, there are some pretty awesome interviews with uh, some really interesting folks on there. That's good. I'm glad that you, like, even if you're not putting out new episodes that you, like, left it up. I get so frustrated when people are like, oh, yeah, we did, you know, 10, 15 episodes, and we took it down. I'm like, what, what are you doing? Leave it up, what? you know? You got 10 episodes. Yeah, it's like, exactly. leave, it, leave it going. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's good because uh, I'm actually kind of interested in the site reliability engineers and, and you know, what they do on a, on a day-to-day basis because I never worked at a company that was, like, that big that we had dedicated reliability engineers. It's a really interesting role. And I think, again, this is one of the roles that kind of varies from company to company, you know, depending on sort of whether or not you have a centralized platform team, or if these are just the folks that run around and, you know, enforce best practices, or if they're running a major migration to, you know, I mentioned Kubernetes earlier to something like Kubernetes off of bare metal, you know, they're running a program like that so that you can have a little bit more of that rely those resilience mechanisms baked in. It's just, it's a different role you know, sort of wherever you go. And so I, I encourage you to, to talk to many of them, not just one, because I think you'll get more of a, a, a wider view of sort of what the responsibility can be. What, I want to know, do you guys write, uh, have you written a book? Like, or is there a book written on site reliability engineers? There are a couple books that have been put together, a couple of uh, like websites as well, just on site reliability engineering. They kind of all take a similar viewpoint Although, you know, they, they try to publish or they try to sort of espouse some pillars, some best principles. There's a little bit of, you know, is that the case? There's a little bit of conversation around, cool, is it people and processes more so? Is it the, pro- is it the actual applications and services, the infrastructure? Yeah, there's, there's a, a, a lot of material out there and there's, there's more and more by the day. Is there a book like on chaos engineering specifically? Like, is there a book titled Chaos Engineering? I believe there's a book on chaos engineering, yes. I think it's an O'Reilly book. I'm gonna Google it real quick. <laughs> Go for it. So the practice, I mean, the practice started way back when uh, in a bunch of different places, but I think this was one that came out of Netflix after sort of the chaos monkey uh, explosion in popularity, so. Yeah, that's like the fir- big image that comes up. It's got the chaos monkey. It's got, oh, your ads. What is chaos engineering? And click on it. For, I'm not going <laughs> to click on it. I'm not going to cost you money. Uh, oh, I appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> but then it's got a Wikipedia entry. 
and then you guys should get if you're not on the wikipedia page you guys got to get on there i uh, think we are right now there's not you know what it, it's even uh as as a note here from my producer he said he couldn't find competitors to you guys and i was like because they're the best no, people don't even want to compete. They just like gremlin solved the problem. We're not even going there. <laughs> I don't know. That's quite true. I mean, I think we have competitors, but in a very, uh, maybe not necessarily in, in the traditional sense. One of the things that we see a lot from some of these enterprise companies is sort of the, the conversation of like build versus buy. So like I said earlier in the podcast, like my title used to be chief chaos engineer, pretty cool title. Turns out a lot of people want to be chaos engineers and they really like breaking things. And so, you know, oftentimes, well, not oftentimes, but occasionally we'll see some companies that are like, hey, we think we can build this internally. We're going to go ahead and just try to spin this up. It's, you know, the, the thing that we end up seeing usually is like, cool, really easy to break stuff, really hard to put it back together the right way. And if you want to do chaos engineering in a very safe, secure, and simple way, which is, those are our three product principles, by the way, you know, it, it's a much more difficult problem to solve. And so you'll oftentimes see some of these companies be like, hey, let's go ahead and try this. And what they'll, they'll probably end up doing is that there's, you know, myriad sort of open source solutions that are very specific, very targeted. We'll do one or two different things. They'll try to sort of cobble those together into a full-fledged like solution, but what ends up happening is, you know, you end up, one, things end up breaking because that's how software works. And then two, you know, there's more and more sort of failure modes that they want to include. And so it's tack this on and bolt this on and tack this on and it becomes a little bit unwieldy pretty quickly. So a lot of that is, is sort of where we're actually seeing the competition right now is more internal for these particular companies and then trying to take some of these, these uh, particular solutions and sort of mush them into one big thing. Beyond that, you know, we've seen a little bit from some of the cloud providers come out. I think Amazon Aurora, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with, Amazon Database, they mm -hmm. came out with uh, the ability to inject a little bit of failure via like SQL-based code, which is or SQL like SQL syntax, which is kind of cool. It's a very definitely a very interesting way, but you know nothing, nothing sort of like holistic. And I mean that's that's largely because you know some of these larger cloud providers like they just do everything right. So these are all very, all their native offerings end up being sort of, look, you can start to use this. This is more for beginners. If you want something dedicated, you know, that's when you start to go towards the people that really focus on it. So. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I'm just, I wish you guys were publicly traded because I'd buy some stock. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you know when we IPO. Don't worry. Please, please do. <laughs> we did it, man. We made a podcast. How do you feel? That was great. I actually, I really enjoyed that. I'm, uh, I, I'm always kind of like, what am I going into? How do these work? And, you know, luckily with, with modern CTO, I actually went a little bit into your backlog. So I was like, okay, this will be fine. Joel's a great guy. Oh, but, nice. Uh, Thank you. I, it feels great, man. I really appreciated you having me on as well. I feel very fortunate for the opportunity to chat with you. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day. Thanks so much. Thanks. Bye guys. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.